Is A&E creating cultural brands or just blowing smoke? And Martin Scorsese doesn't understand Rotten Tomatoes and the feeling is mutual. This is episode 73 of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom A. Sacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I'm Mark Ramsey. And I'm Tom Asacker. Tom, is A&E, A&E would be the cable network, creating cultural brands or blowing smoke? I just, you know I love this piece, right? I know you do. <laughs> I, this is from our friends at Media Village, and the title is A&E's Amanda Hill Elevates Networks into Cultural Brands. And there's a picture of her looking like a million bucks, looking like she doesn't work at all. She just stands in front of a window looking like a million bucks. The picture tells a story, doesn't the picture, it? <laughs> the picture, Tom, the picture is tells, the story. Tells a story. So here's how it begins. A&E Networks, a joint venture of Disney and Hearst, which is another way of saying you can hide, <laughs> has grown from a single network cable network de- devoted to cultural programming, A&E uh, Arts and Entertainment Network, as it was known, to a global media content company reaching more than 335 million households. Because, Tom, as you well know, just wow. because you reach them means you, they, they watch you, right? Exactly. I don't know. The trash guys reach more than that. So. <laughs> <laughs> Just over a year ago, she was brought on as chief marketing officer. You can feel the PR bubbling up to the surface to help continue that trajectory and oversee the brand vision. Here's where it starts getting good. She's already had a big impact on the positioning of the company as three core consumer brands, A&E, History, and Lifetime. Remember those channels? I do. Summarizing a new branding campaign theme of The Power of Stories, Tom. God, in I tell you. <laughs> in an address to uh, an advertising conference last week, because I think those are the people who are interested in those themes, right? The advertisers? They love that word story. Yes. Big time. This week, she elaborated on the strategy. So I just got to read this one paragraph, then I got to see what you think. Soon after she took reins as CMO, the company committed to a portfolio strategy of, quote, life magnified. What that means at the A&E Network's <laughs> brand portfolio level, she, she said, is that our job is to cultivate, find, and illuminate stories audiences care about. But each of the brands have their own interpretation of what aspect of life is appropriate for them to magnify. In other words, it means everything and nothing all at once. Okay, you're reading it with a particular feeling here, aren't you? <laughs> I am. Can you tell? So for Lifetime and its core female audience, it becomes a way to flip the scripts on labels. By the mm. way, Lifetime, I think what she's talking about are shows like Dance Moms, Little Women Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> by the way, Little Women Atlanta, you know what that sh- you know that's not from the book by Louisa May Alcott, right? <laughs> this is the sarcasm-filled episode. <laughs> <laughs> so for history, it's magnifying our need for knowledge, context, and understanding. And there, of course, she's talking about ice road truckers and American pickers. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. And for A&E, it's brave storytelling. And there she must be talking about Storage Wars and Ozzy and Jack's World Detour. So the process, <laughs> <laughs> the, the process mandated that the brand delve deep into what matters to their audiences. And this is my favorite sentence. You I hear it comes. You simply can't stand for what you don't understand. I love that. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that. I read that like 10 times, and, 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 and I did one of those dog looks like, huh? Because here's the thing. <laughs> if you're looking to your audience to inform your opinions, then you don't stand for anything. It's no different than politicians polling citizens and then telling them what they want to hear, mm-hmm. right? It's like principles. What principles? <laughs> you know, What do you want? Tell us it will make it. 
So it's funny you say the History Channel spotlights the powerful stories of people who defied norms, invented, resisted, won, lost, died, but are not forgotten, like Pawn Stars and Axemen. <laughs> Or maybe the ancient <laughs> aliens and UFO hunters. Do you know what I'm saying? How do you tell this story? I'm waiting when... for their show, Brave Podcasters. That would be a good one. <laughs> yeah, we'll, make, we'll make that one. Bold I love podcasters. It. I love A&E's mission. The mission, <laughs> the last part of it, correct me up. The mission is to be different, diversified, and necessary. <laughs> that's that's yeah isn't necessary like everyone's mission if you're in business you would you would absolutely hope i love this they say history came full circle to a positioning that was an anchor for the brand not long ago but feels even more relevant today quote history made every day in other words history that's not history yet <laughs> I knew that you loved the culture brands thing. I too. just love that. I love, of, look, I, uh, don't get me wrong. <laughs> I absolutely feel that culture is an important component of branding. I really, really do. It's just that this is such obvious puffery. This is such obvious, you know, uh, make work nonsense. But, but that, what's a culture brand? I mean, well, no, I'm not saying there's, there's a culture brand. I'm saying culture is an element of branding. Those are not the same thing, right? No, of course, but a culture brand, I mean, if you want to look at what that is, I mean, it's something that spreads through society and becomes like an icon, like mm -hmm. a Nike swoosh or something. Right. You know, so is she saying we're a culture brand? We're one of these things? I mean, if somebody says to you, honey, what are you watching? Are you going to say, oh, I'm watching a portfolio of culture brands? <laughs> no, you're going to say, I'm watching a TV show. I'm watching American Pickers. Don't bother me <laughs> with your right? culture brand nonsense. Yeah, so, so maybe she means that she's creating identity brands, but that's even redundant, right? Because anything that you do today had better be targeted to a very specific psychographic audience every brand's an identity brand mm -hmm. but we're talking about entertainment these mm -hmm. are fictional tv shows right <laughs> i know it's 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 uh, it, look they obviously have a problem they have a challenge the ratings are not good they're not even in the original content business anymore they bates motel was their last uh, effort there on a and e anyway and um i i think they're kind of groping for relevance and and they're, relevance and they're right. and they're and they're they're uh, assuming that relevance can be created if you wish hard enough, right? You know, no. or if you tell the right story. Everybody thinks that telling the right story makes you necessary. Uh uh Well, the other <laughs> thing is this is a story told not so much from the brand to the audience, not in the form of American pick, Pickers and Little Women Atlanta, but from the brand to the advertisers. Exactly, that's exactly what it is. Here she closes on, I think, a, a, a powerful note. Uh, attention is the scarcest commodity in the world, Tom. I've never heard that before. And, mm -hmm. and everyone is looking for audience, and she forgot to add, especially us here at A&E Networks. <laughs> in the face of this, our mission, this is what you were saying, I'm di different, diversified, and necessary, to be ne seen not as just TV networks, but a portfolio of culture brands. And you're so right. Who in the, world, who in the audience cares about that distinction? No one. That will use, quote, powerful storytelling. It's The buzzwords are coming at me so fast I can barely dodge out of the way without getting impacted. Look, um, if, she, if she's a culture brand, then I should be seeing people walking around 
wearing T-shirts with the names of these TV shows all over them. Uh, that's true. I mean, like a you, Sons of Anarchy or something like that. That's you, when the culture takes, when the brand takes on this cultural feel. You know, it drove motorcycle sales, Harley sales. Yes, it's so, true. Right? But I don't see that. I, of, I don't see it. Game of Thrones is another one, right? Walking Dead is another one. Something that's right. had Stranger Things. Something that's had outsized influence on the culture, you could argue, as a cultural brand. But you don't achieve that outside influence by aspiring to be a cultural brand. You're a cultural brand because you achieve that outsized influence. That's the difference. Exactly. <laughs> 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 that doesn't fit well on her our press material. <laughs> You're listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey. Martin Scorsese, and I love pronouncing his name Scorsese instead of Scorsese. I know, I say uh, Scorsese. I know. Uh, on, <laughs> this is a piece from uh, The Hollywood Reporter. He doesn't understand Rotten Tomatoes and the feeling is mutual. I, just, I, I, I thought that would amuse you, that title. Oh, no, that's a beautiful title. Oh, thank you very much. You're coming back. You're coming I back. I know I'm coming back. I've been gone for a while, but I'm back. So... Martin Scorsese on Rotten Tomatoes, box office obsession and why the movie Mother was misjudged. This is a guest, <laughs> a guest column in uh, The Hollywood Reporter oh, yeah, yeah. because uh, Marty, uh, uh, well, you know why. <laughs> he wanted to rant. <laughs> yes. Now, I wish it, could, it was that he had time on his hands and wanted to rant, but he has a point to make because, let me guess, Marty's movies don't do well on Rotten Tomatoes. Let me just take a wild guess that his late his movies of the past 20 years don't do that great. You know what's funny is I thought that as well. So I looked up his last movie because I thought that that was the one that he was really angry about. And that was, you know, this movie Silence, which I haven't seen because I read some of the reviews that said that, hey, this is a difficult thing to get through. It's beautifully shot and everything. And, and I thought, oh, this is it. He's he's letting this out, all this pent up anger about this movie Silence. Yeah. But it, it got like 80 percent favorable reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, but so, how many reviews did it get? That's the problem. Nobody saw it, right? No. <laughs> that's yeah, that's that's I mean his that's his real beef is that nobody's seeing his movies. Um, the legendary director is critical of the outsized influence of tomato meter ratings and cinema score grades, adding that good films by real filmmakers aren't made to be decoded, consumed or instantly comprehended. And I would add <laughs> or comprehended at all. <laughs> So oh, this was really God. interesting because he just went off. Uh, aggregators like Rotten Tomatoes, this is Marty talking now, which have absolutely nothing to do with real film criticism. They rate a picture the way you'd rate a horse at the racetrack, which, by the way, is a very useful tool uh, at a racetrack. <laughs> you get people betting on horses. <laughs> yeah. A restaurant in a Zagat's Guide, which, again, very useful, or a household appliance <laughs> in Consumer Reports. Those are three incredibly utilitarian... <laughs> <laughs> and he's critiquing them. I don't, I don't think he's supporting his point very well. Um, they have everything to do with the movie business and absolutely nothing to do with either the creation or the intelligent viewing of film. Note he didn't say how many people actually go to see the movie. He's all mixed up. This, he's this, mixed this, up. This whole article is mixed up. Look, he starts out with an example of what he calls the truly damaging preview of Orson Welles' movie, The Magnificent Ambersons. Right. Right, which the preview led RKO Pictures to, he says, butcher the film. Yes. They edit. They edited out more than an hour of, of footage. They changed the ending to a happier ending. Now, that butchered version 
is regarded as among the best U.S. films ever made. Mm -hmm. It was nominated for four Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Rotten Tomatoes reports that 91% of critics gave the film a positive review. Hmm. Right? So you look at that as his, as his example that sets the tone for the rest of the article. And you say, mm -hmm. wait, wait a minute. So the premise, means... the premise there is, had not the studio interfered, it would be oh so much better, and he knows that why because he doesn't know that. Because he's a filmmaker. Because, because, look, appraising and editing films is in the eyes of the beholder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, he writes that the, that the research firm Cine, CinemaScore and, and Rotten Tomatoes, they have no, absolutely nothing to do with real film criticism. They rate a, you know, like you said, they rate a picture the way they do a household appliance. <laughs> but, you know, what he's got, he's got something wrong here because CinemaScore is not measuring quality. They're measuring mainstream response. CinemaScore, if I remember right, is scores of people, uh, they, they exit the movie and they give it right. a score on exit, right? Right. So that's the movie's appeal based on the expectations well, that's of the audience. Whether, yeah, that's whether, okay, I went to see this. Did I or didn't I like it? Which every consumer has every right to say in response to every interaction with a good or service, right? Yeah, if anything, maybe that means you better be careful what kind of expectations you create for a movie with your marketing. Because if people go in there expecting one thing and then they walk out and they're disappointed, then, then you did that. They didn't do it. I think what Marty's really saying here is, is he's asking the, the rhetorical question, how in the world am I supposed to make art in a world where people actually have to pay to see these movies? Oh, yeah. He even wrote in there, he wants to return to film criticism written by passionately engaged people with actual knowledge of film history. And I read that over and over and I thought, Yep, because the experts, they know the difference between good art and bad art. Like the art critics who outright dismiss the Impressionists, or the critics uh, who pan Beethoven's symphonies when he wrote them. Oh, then there's the great English poet John Keats, who suffered relentless attacks mm -hmm. from critics. Mm -hmm. So who says the critics know what's good or bad? Well, and right? I, you know, interestingly, as you know, and uh, you haven't heard it yet in the new show in Inside the Exorcist, but in Inside Psycho... I go at length uh, to discuss the responses of critics at the time, and I also indicate in that show how within a year, uh, many of them had completely done an about-face. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he says that more and more voices out there are engaged in pure judgmentalism. Now, I read that, and I said, what, what the hell is this guy talking about? What? Judgmentalism. He, is he saying that the audiences and the reviewers feel that they are superior than the, than the artists? No. They didn't rush to any judgment with the movie Mother. They didn't like it. <laughs> he's he's, he's, he's um, expressing resistance to the idea that the average Joe and Jane, that not that they're not That's allowed it. to have their opinion, but that they shouldn't be allowed to share their opinion. Exactly. That their opinion shouldn't be able to sway your opinion, that only the opinion of someone smarter than you should have that opportunity to sway your opinion. And that's, it's, it's you know what, it's never really worked that way. <laughs> Look, Mark, you've hit the nail right on the head. If you want the mainstream to love your movie, produce a mainstream movie. That's correct. Like, like Spider-Man. If you want to create something daring and original, 
find a receptive audience, maybe through Netflix or Amazon or something. I mean, he writes that good films by real filmmakers aren't made to be decoded, like you said, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. They're not made to be instantly liked. I agree with him. Mm -hmm. And so, guess what? Don't be bothered when they're not. That's correct. Then let it go. But <laughs> let he's it go. What he's really upset with is that these mechanisms keep people from going to the theater to experience the movie. That uh, uh, when, in fact, if they were to go to the theater and experience them, judging by popular opinion, they wouldn't like it. So he's <laughs> almost resenting the fact that he can't hoodwink the audience. I I don't know. It, it's it, like I said. That whole piece was kind of a crazy rant and then he said this. no sense from beginning then he said this is anyone familiar with the history of movies knows all too well um there is a very long list of titles the wizard of oz it's a wonderful life vertigo and point blank to name just a few that were rejected on first release and went on to become classics interesting his selection of titles there tom do you think that's at all biased <laughs> he left out ishtar heaven's gate green lantern and the adventures of pluto nash <laughs> You know what the crazy thing is? Honestly, I love Martin Scorsese's movies. Mm -hmm. I, or Scorsese. I love his movies. Mm -hmm. And I have not seen Silence. And that really, that confuses me, honestly. Mm -hmm. Because I love his movies. But I read some of the reviews. And I went, I don't think that I want to sit through that. Mm -hmm. Isn't that strange? Well, I mean, what you're reflecting, in, in an era when the critics were all kind of intelligentsia, few and far between experts, um, that was also an era, era where the filmmaker and the studio that supported them had an outsized influence on manipulating the opinions of those critics. Mm -hmm. So now they no longer have the ability to shape the agenda, to shape what people are interested in, to shape what people even pay attention to. And yep. that, I think, is irking him as well, which is why I think you and I did this on a recent show where we talked about his deal with, wasn't it Netflix? Yes. That Marty was doing a deal with? No, you're right. You're right. And you know what? And here's the other thing. When you don't have that one person like I used to always go to, which was a rock, uh, was Ebert. I mean, he was my right. man. I have to go to all of the critics, and I've got to scan through them and try to make my judgment based on that. Mm -hmm. That's just how it works. Now, whether he likes it or not, it doesn't really matter, does it? <laughs> well, we, and what you're describing is we went from an era where there was a relatively small number of critics you knew and trusted. It's like any mm -hmm. other familiarity thing, right? Exactly. And now we're in an era where there are no such critics that you know and trust. They're all gone. Um, and as a result, you have to go with um, the wisdom of the crowd. And that's what Rotten Tomatoes is. It's exactly. the wisdom of the crowd. And if you don't like the crowd, do a deal with Netflix. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> all right, Tom, it's time for Rants and Raves. What's on oh, your agenda? Oh, boy. I, uh, yes, I guess we should just keep ranting. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> a rave has to be coming up here somewhere, but not on no, my list. No, no, no. Well, this could be a rave at the end, but I just read the, the results of uh, what's called the world's largest known study. I like how they say known. The world's largest <laughs> known study. <laughs> That's a hedge. On, yeah, exactly. On the mental health of musicians. Oh, great. And, yeah, and this is called Can Music Make You Sick? So... <laughs> I feel like ranting a little bit about this and maybe raving. I don't know. You can tell me what I'm feeling here. But I just can't get over a lot of these costly studies, especially ones that set out to prove the obvious, like this one. And, and so what they found was that a career in music is damaging to your mental health. Ah. Now, 
I read it and I said, well, maybe, maybe this is a chicken and egg thing. Maybe one's, you know, deviant disposition is what allowed folks like Freddie Mercury and Elton John, David Bowie, Elvis Costello. Maybe that's what allowed them to shine as artists. But I right. digress. So let me get to the study. So this particular study was undertaken by the University of Westminster researchers in order to offer insight into the scale of what they call the mental health challenges facing Britain, Britain's musicians. Mm -hmm. They did a survey of over 2,000 musicians, and it revealed that they are up to three times more likely to experience depression compared to the general public. Now, here's what I want you to get at. Now, it's due to things like the difficulty of sustaining a living, antisocial working hours, exhaustion, and the inability to plan for their future. Now, here are some of the other findings. Now, I want to know, do these resonate with you? I'm going to read them, and then you tell me if they resonate with you. Okay. Musicians' relationship to their work is integral to their sense of self. It's how they define themselves. People yes. in the music industry needed to believe in themselves and their work, yet the unpredictable nature of the business can knock that belief. Yes. Music makers can be reflective and highly self-critical and exist in an environment of constant critical feedback. <laughs> Is that a yes too, Mark? I don't know if we'd be doing this podcast if that were true, but it's right, close let's enough. Let's call it a yes. A career in music is often precarious and unpredictable. Yes, that's every business today, right? Okay. Many musicians have several different jobs as part of a portfolio career, and as a result, can feel as though they work 24-7 and can't take a break. I have multiple clients right now <laughs> who are also Uber drivers. It can't be hard for musicians to admit to it can be hard for musicians to admit to insecurities because of competition and wanting to appear on top of things. Um, unless you work at A and E Networks, that is true. And finally, <laughs> family, friends, and partners play an important role in supporting musicians, but this can also lead to feelings of guilt. <laughs> so I just read you a list, and if you replace the word musician with writer, mm -hmm. actor, speaker, podcaster, designer, consultant, or just put in freelancer, mm -hmm. we're talking about a lot of potentially depressed people in today's modern marketplace. Uh, it's really so, true. Soon to be close to half of the workforce, by the way. And yet, so was this, this was published somewhere, so someone thought this was newsworthy, right? Oh, yeah, they're going to try to solve the problem. I don't know what they're going to do, give people counseling. I think it's time we thought about a few things. One, how to do our work and create our art without making it this serious story about our self-worth, without mm -hmm. taking others' opinions to heart, without taking ourselves so damn seriously. Now, this is a hard thing to do, but in the meantime, let me pull back the curtain for you because I have been with all these people who are celebrities prior to them being celebrities, mm -hmm. please know that none of them have this thing called life figured out. <laughs> everyone is winging it, right? So if we all know that everyone's winging it, let's support each other, our bold attempts at creation. Let's give a wink of acknowledgement, a kind word, a slap in the back. What the hell? Take someone out that's trying to change things for a cold beer at a local pub. And by the way, 
That includes all of you Media Unplugged listeners. I mean, if you like what we're doing, tell us, will you? Every once in a while. <laughs> so I think that's so interesting because the idea that we're all winging it is so true. I feel it all the time. I know when I did the first uh, podcast for Wondery, the Psycho one, and I, uh, we did a, a, the teaser, right. and we only had a teaser done, and we said, we can do this, it can be six parts. I didn't know if it could be six parts. I didn't know if it could be three parts. Exactly. I didn't know if I could write any of it. I didn't know if it, any of it would work or if anyone would care about it. I had no idea, but I knew I was winging it. And I, it's, it's, it's so true, and we, we do it all the time. And, you know, what I find interesting on the flip side is when I went to Podcast Movement a while back, and I saw from the statistics that something like 15 20% of the people there were thinking about doing a podcast but hadn't yet. Hmm. And I thought... Exactly what kind of insight are you waiting for? All the information out is out there on how to do it if you want to. Nothing's keeping you from doing it. The only thing that's keeping you from doing it is you've decided that you're not ready to do it. Yeah, um, and there is no ready. That's the, there is that's no ready. Your you're winging that's, it all the time. If you right. say yes, you know, embrace, embrace it and go. So that's, that's, that's really good, Tom. Thank you. Um, I have uh, three, but they're short. So I, I can hear people tuning out already saying, what else is on my iPhone today? So these are, these are short. And of course, they're all rants because that's uh, apparently that's how I'm feeling do. today. Yeah. First one, I got an email this week from Blue Apron. We know Blue Apron because it's on every podcast seemingly except for ours. Um, and guess what, Tom? Blue Apron is introducing their new podcast. Because Didn't they just lay off a bunch of people? Uh, well, I think this podcast happened moments <laughs> before they lay oh, okay. off a bunch of people. Okay. Yes, that was the answer to your question. So now we all know Blue Apron because they, they appear on every podcast. So the title of it is called Why We Eat What We Eat. And I, I, as soon as I see the picture and heard the title, I thought, this is something I've been waiting for all of my life. Yeah, because I don't know why I eat what I eat. I can yes. tell you. <laughs> Ever wonder why kale became a thing? Well, no. <laughs> or why America has so many picky eaters? No. Or why potluck exists? No. Us too. <laughs> Find out in our new podcast. And my first thought was, and then I looked more closely, and right there under the title of the podcast, right next to the Blue Apron logo is another logo, Gimlet Creative. Oh, boy. Aha. So I thought, you know, the best, ads, the best ad on a podcast is really a podcast that's an ad. <laughs> <laughs> so that's number one. Number two, and this one is purely for you. Uh -oh. um, it's an article from business2community.com, and it's called How to Create Marketing Wow. Because I spend hours every day looking for articles, Tom, that you probably wrote 25 years ago, and this is certainly <laughs> in that category. So here's, this came out, by the way, just like seconds ago. But oh, here, are the, here are the four ways to create marketing wow. You're going to love I can't this. Wait. Play the how to lose a customer game. Ask yourself, what could I do to lose customers? Create your most exhaustive list. Some items might include being late, overcharging, etc. Go above and beyond in the other direction. Okay? Oh, that's like a Seinfeld thing where George did the opposite. I like that. <laughs> Number two, do the unexpected. I never would have thought of that. Number three, creatively borrow from other industries. Oh. And number four, this one's the most important one. Find your wow idea, then deliver it. The best idea is useless unless it's implemented, Tom. <laughs> okay, so cut it out, will you, Mark? That's 25 years ago. You must have written that. I know you could find it for me. And here's the third one. This is the most tragic one of all. 
Um, are you aware of the Anne Frank Halloween costume controversy? Oh, jeez, please don't even tell me. This is for kids because, you know, it's got to be for kids. But there was some controversy because there's a company putting out a costume for kids that was billed as an Anne Frank uh, costume, which is it's a beret and a... Uh, what's because that? they're all looking for that. Beret, a dress, a hat, a bag, etc. So um, much controversy arose over this, so they eliminated it. Actually, no, Tom... They didn't eliminate it. They probably created the controversy, right? They, I doubt that very much, but what they <laughs> did do is they renamed it. So now it's a company called Smithy that does this. So now their Anne Frank costume is now Smithy's World War II evacuee girl costume. What the Evacuee hell? girl. I wasn't aware about this category called evacuee girls in World <laughs> War II. So the costume includes, and by the way, it's the exact same photo they rebranded it. They rebranded it. And right. just to give you an idea of the impact of that, it is right this minute on Amazon.com. So, and I actually reached out to Amazon. I said, you guys, come on. This is really not appropriate. Um, and they said, oh, yeah, we'll get right on that. That was two days ago, and it's still there. So oh, the costume thanks. includes uh, a dress, a hat, a bag, which looks just like Anne Frank. It does not include, then there's a little tag on her lapel that is her evacuation tag. So it doesn't include her evacuation tag, nor does it include other, any other emblems which would be objectionable to 99.9% of America. So I just thought I would mention that as... What um, are people thinking? Unbelievable that something like that could be done, and also unbelievable, I think, that they could... That in their infinite wisdom, the way of reacting to the controversy would be to rebrand the costume with the exact same photo. I mean, I just think that's <laughs> deplorable. If anything's worth a rant, that's it. Oh, gracious. All right. That's Media Unplugged for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher. And while you're there, please rate the show. It helps other folks discover us. You can also catch us at art19.com, Radio Inc., Media Village, and Google Play Music because we have the best music in town. Exactly. You can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Asacker, and many do. Some follow him in real life, in fact. No, it's true. And Mark and we, at Mark Ramsey Media. Send us yep. your questions and comments using hashtag Media Unplugged. If there's a media topic you want us to cover, tweet us. Catch up on older episodes at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. Special thanks to the most amazing producer of audio in the world, I've got to say. No, he's amazing. Jeff Schmidt, exciting audio for media. You can find him at jeff-schmidt.com. Tom, the work he's doing on this show and the work he's doing on Inside Exorcist. I just heard the final episode. You wouldn't, you're not going to believe it. Wait till you no, hear it. No, no, I've been listening. It's, it's awesome. Hey, you think we should do like media unplugged Halloween masks maybe with like our faces, our sarcastic faces that people can, <laughs> they can walk around and people say, who are you two kids? They go media unplugged and say something really sarcastic. I'll be uh, Marty Scorsese <laughs> and you be A&E's Amanda Hill. How's that? Okay, that sounds good. For Tom A. Sacker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>